My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So this week's guest on Bridges to the Future is Nick Hayes. Hi, Nick. Hello. You're a writer and we're going to be talking about your book. But how do you describe yourself, Nick? Oh, it's always been a tricky one. It was easy when I worked in an office because then I was just a sort of marketing manager for a series of charities. Then I kind of became a graphic novelist before I became an illustrator. But I guess the comics allowed me to get into illustration. Then I became an illustrator for about five years. And now I guess I'm just dipping my toe into the world of writing. So I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty good CV. I'm sure people listening are thinking, oh, I wish I had a life as interesting as that. So before we get into talk about the book a bit more, the good thing is it's got a big idea at the heart of it. So you won't be phased when I ask you, Nick, the question we ask everybody on this podcast. So Nick Hayes, what's your big idea for the world after COVID? Well, I think lockdown is something that has made us realise the intrinsic link between access to space, to open air, and all the sort of mental and physical health properties that come with it. So I guess my big idea is opening up more of nature to the public. And to do that, there's already an existing framework called the Countryside and Rights of Way Act. And we're simply proposing to extend it so that it covers forests, greenbelt, rivers, and downland, because those are what we perceive to be the most accessible areas of nature that will do the quantifiable most for people's mental health. The book is a fantastic kind of mixture of history, philosophy, polemic, kind of the stories of you as you trespass around the country. I mean, it's fantastic. And I'd say this to you, Nick, I pride myself on reading the books of people who come onto this podcast. And you know, I haven't read all of your book and I'll tell you why, because I enjoyed it so much. I didn't want to read it quickly. It's also massive. I've just received my copy of it and, uh, <laughs> you, you know. It's a big book, but it's so beautifully written and it's so fascinating that I read the first three chapters and I thought, I'm not going to read this in a rush. I want to slow it down. I'm going to take it on holiday. I'm really going to enjoy it. It's one of those reads that kind of gives you a kind of visceral pleasure as well as all the information that it contains. So congratulations on a fantastic book. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) So let's get into this idea. And I think that one of the things I thought about the book was that sleep is quite a big part of the book. And let me explain what I mean by that. There's quite a lot of the book, which is about you falling asleep in the countryside. You know, most of the chapters I've read anyway, that, you know, you're finding somewhere where you can sleep and you can set up your fire. You can have your sausages, roll your joint or whatever it might be. is quite a big part of it. But there's also, I would say, this notion of sleep is a bigger idea because you're trying to wake us up. You're trying to wake the reader up to the fact that the way in which we assume that property gives people the right to exclude people from land is not kind of the natural order of things. It's not inevitable. It's very unnatural. And it's a consequence of a particular set of historical processes and and power relations. So there's almost like there's this kind of wake up call to all of us. Don't make the assumption it has to be like this. 
I mean, that's so nice to hear that that message came across. That's really cool. It was originally, I mean, my working title was going to be The Spellbound Land. I did want to sort of put across this idea that what has become an orthodoxy or what some people describe as even deeper than an orthodoxy, a doxa, something that isn't even questioned, these brick walls of the estates, these sort of barbed wire that blocks us from nature has just become so sort of written into essentially the code of what it is to be a civilized society that we've actually lost sight of the damage that it's done to us on a kind of psychic but also you know physical level but also on the point of you know just bog standard going to sleep it was important to me that camping and I suppose wild camping is the hashtag but just camping it doesn't need to sort of come with its new brand it's just simply falling asleep under the stars and waking up to the dawn chorus which is at once so prosaic and so normal you know it happens every day but when you actually do it and when you do it quite regularly it really does sort of feed a piece into your body but the point was very simply octavia hill who set up the national trust and kind of was key to a lot of the land rights battles that was sort of hosted by the arts and crafts movement and funded by the arts and crafts movement. Her key philosophy was bringing access to the open space for basically the working class of the urban environments that were in such cramped conditions. And her whole point was that we should feel at home in nature. And that's very much how I feel when I'm bedding down of a night. You found yourself a little sort of sheltered nook and you've got the whole wide world spread out in front of you. And it just, it's really important for us to feel that nature is a place that we can feel very comfortable in and very empathetic and very caring towards in a way that we might care for our own garden or our own property. It's particularly, Nick, isn't it an issue for children? My eight-year-old's just been watching Survivor with Bear Grylls on ITV. And, you know, that's a you know, like all TV programs, it's a highly kind of structured, slightly fictionalized kind of presentation. But nevertheless, the point about that taking these kind of 11 and 12 year old kids who've had a tough life, and, you know, forcing them to kind of overcome their fears and to deal with terrible weather and to undertake these exercises, you know, kids miss out so much, don't they, from on the one hand, just the wonder of nature. I do remember many years ago going abroad with other families and there was a group of boys and they were typical boys, you know, obsessed with kind of video games and football and all that kind of stuff. And there was just one night we persuaded them to go and lie down and look at the stars because, of course, we were in the middle of the I know, French or Italian countryside, so there was no other light. And they lay there for about an hour in a kind of state of reverie and philosophical kind of speculation which I'd never seen in them before so you've got this kind of wonder on the one hand but also the kind of and this is what you see from the tv program is the effect it has on people of overcoming a physical challenge you know overcoming a mental challenge is one thing but overcoming a physical challenge is a different kind of feeling it's more resonant in some ways isn't it Oh, absolutely. The point you make about early years education, that kind of forest school philosophy of, you know, simply the best way to learn about the natural world is to be in it. And that's very simply about observing and picking up and touching and engaging on a visceral level. Science has shown with empirical evidence that sensations such as wonder or being presented with sublime actually do vastly positive things to our mental makeup and can actually make us feel a lot better about ourselves. 
your point on Bear Grylls is really interesting, but I have to confess, like that whole sort of macho man kind of approach to the countryside is just what I perceive to be another one of its brands. And actually, I think it's more excluding to people than it is including. Very much from my point of view, you know, I bring with me an inflatable mattress that I have a foot pump for. I set up, you know, the little bivy tent. And I feel just like Octavia Hill sort of suggested, I feel entirely at ease and at home in nature. And from a personal level, I guess what I get out of it is very, very low octane appreciation of nature. But I also, of course, concede your point that that process of overcoming physical challenges just stays with children for the rest of their life and actually affects the way they approach other challenges that are forthcoming. It's really interesting, isn't it, that question of the relationship between the kind of professionals and experts and the issue of wider access. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about persuading more people to cycle. And I think one of the reasons people are worried about cycling is they look at kind of Lycra man and his £2,000, £3,000 bicycle, and they think, oh, God, I could never do that. And I guess you're probably right that too much watching Bear Grylls leads you to believe that unless you're out there eating maggots out of a badger corpse, (laughs) you're not really doing it properly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, bring a, you know, bring a cheese sandwich and a nice flask of tea and just watch the sun go down. It doesn't all have to be, you don't have to push yourself. I think nature will seep into you regardless. No, well, that's a lovely idea, isn't it? You don't have to do anything to it. Just let it be for you. And I think that's one of the things that did happen in COVID. And, you know, always we have to say when we talk about lockdown, the experience of people who had gardens and did thought work was so much easier than for so many other people. But nevertheless... You know, I remember talking much, much earlier in this podcast, serious talking to Michael Ignatieff, who's kind of great public intellectual. And, you know, he'd been in lockdown somewhere, I think, in Central Europe. But he just said he'd never noticed spring before, that being locked down had... And he's a deep thinker. And he said, this is the first time I've really noticed spring. And I think that was true for a lot of people, actually. There was this greater appreciation of nature, even if it was just our own kind of front garden. Well, I think everyone, this is why this particular podcast and its theme is so fascinating to me, because I think from very early on in lockdown, like all the newspapers were asking, is this the new world order? All of my sort of hippie, radical, anti-HS2 friends and stuff were thinking, this is finally it. People have seen, like the planes have fallen from the skies, like the air is clean. You're absolutely right, just the sort of basic level of noticing what's going on we're so insulated in our urban environments and now as we approach the end of lockdown i guess my confidence in the new world order is beginning to get a bit shaky so the way we see it you know there's nothing better than our campaign to extend the countryside and rights of way act as something that's galvanizing to actually give people something solid as a result of this that will actually on an evidence-based matrix improve their mental health and improve their physical health we're sort of champing at the bit to get going on this campaign. And the book is honestly just simply something to give us momentum for it. Well, I can tell you it's a lot more than that. It is a wonderful book, even if there wasn't a campaign attached to it. But one of the things in the book that made me really sit up was the scale of the land that we can't access. Because I think, you know, one of the things about Britain and England in particular, is it's a very crowded country. It's a very populous country. And it may be an ultimately we find out that's one of the reasons why we've managed COVID so bad. One of the reasons, I think there's lots of other ones, but one of the reasons. 
And then you see this figure in your book for the amount of land which we can't access. And you realise, because I have this kind of sense, I think a lot of people do, they think, oh, well, you know, I'm in London, I'll go to Box Hill on bank holiday, but it's going to be bloody Oxford Circus. You know, what's the point of it? And then you think, and you say, there's so much space out there, but we just can't get access to it. Well, I think one of the things science, as far as I've read, hasn't been able to pinpoint the effect on the human mind is just solitude itself. The Kinder Trespass, which is one of the most famous trespasses from the 30s, protest for better rights of access to the moors, was completely spurred by that idea that there was only like two full public footpaths across 37 square miles of Bleaklow, and the rest was just entirely empty and owned by the Duke of Devonshire. They wanted that solitude. They wanted that sense of just a personal... I mean... It's like going to the Sistine Chapel and not seeing Michelangelo, but just being jostled by a million other people. I think everyone can understand on a basic level. That's not the same thing. You might not have the figures to hand it, but just remind us of broadly the kind of scale of land, great land, land that we wonderful to walk in and sleep in and, and appreciate that we basically have no right to access. Well, yeah, this sense that England is full is another one of the orthodoxies that just goes unquestioned. I mentioned in the book, Richard Drax is an MP down in the West Country and he stood up not too long ago in the Houses of Commons and said I believe as many of my constituents do that this country is full and there is a kind of rhetorical ghoul to that in that he himself owns approximately 11 square miles of woodland of farmland and of wildflower meadow and there's this idea that it's full that actually plays into more of the emotional side of the brain as opposed to any supported facts so only about 6% of England is built on. There's, I guess, it's about 36,000 people in England, which is under 1%, own half of the land of England. A third is owned by the aristocracy. There's an enormous amount of land that could be available to people, not to mention the rivers, of which we only have 3% access to. There's all this green space and blue space it's often presented that there's a sense of nosiness or sort of jealousy that we want what other people have earned. But the stark point is that we actually need it for public health. And if you want to look at it in terms of, you know, the lockdown rhetoric, we need it in terms of alleviating the pressure on the National Health Service. And it's there. Part of the story that you tell in the book, Nick, is about the kind of, and you see this in so many other contexts, but the kind of othering that goes on that the justification for keeping people out for saying that I have to have all this space just for myself is that if you allow people on, they'll come on and they'll litter and they'll have wild dogs and they'll behave appallingly. The yobs, the gypsies, the loiterers. And there's quite a lot in the book about part of the story to justify property has been, look what happens when you allow you know, the hoi polloi to come onto my land. Absolutely. And it really is just a trope. It's been there since before the Tudors, this idea that the public are vandals. Obviously, lockdown has brought the issue of litter in the Peak District or on Bournemouth Beach. That's something that we really have to confront. And I would obviously say that, you know, greater early years education in nature is the only way to allow people to form a bond with it, as opposed to treat it as just another one of our corporate venues where you basically leave your drink and let someone else who's on minimum wage pick it up for you. 
But this idea of the othering, there's two basic arguments to write to Rome. One is, do you want me coming over and tramping over your back garden as if, you know, one person's private property is just this universal standard of privacy? And that kind of idea takes absolutely no insight into context or the scale. You know, the English law treats me jumping over into your back garden as exactly the same tort or wrong as me going for a stroll in your 2,000-acre woodland. That's patently not the same thing. And in terms of damage or an intrusion to your sense of security, it's not the same thing. I barely met a soul throughout the whole of the book when I was trespassing on other people's land because I had no interest in their back gardens. Of course not. I would feel dreadfully embarrassed to have stumbled in on someone putting their washing up or something. But the truth is, there's so much space that I came nowhere near. And this othering thing, I mean, it's what's happening now, actually, with the proposed criminalization of trespass. Once again, the traveling community, who were incorrectly labeled Egyptians by Henry VIII, which is obviously where the word gypsies come from, are just the sort of universal fear, this kind of orthodoxy that the traveling community can't be trusted is just like it happened in the Tudor times, is being used to restrict the freedoms of the general public. The government haven't said an awful lot in response to the petition that is still running on their website, Stop the Criminalization of Trespass. But it's still looking like if you're caught, as I was, say, on the River Loddon just a couple of weeks ago by four representatives of the Duke of Wellington, as soon as this legislation gets passed by the Conservatives, ostensibly to take away the homes and the property of the travelling community and playing to their base in doing so. I would have been arrested by the Duke of Wellington's men. And if I was caught again, I would no doubt be either facing a large fine or a length of time in prison. One of the things that your book made me feel, you know, sad about, I guess, was that I would have said, one of Labour's achievements, and of course, I was involved in getting that Labour government elected and then worked for it for a while, was the right to roam. And that was progress, but it was not nearly as far as we ought to go. So just help us to understand the limitations of the reforms that Labour put in place and the difference in terms of what you're calling for now. Absolutely. What the Labour government did with the passing of the Countryside and Rights of Way Act in 2000, so we're coming, this is the 20th anniversary, it's come of age this year, was extend our right to roam, which is our ability to wander and explore and take whichever path we choose or is practical, across about 8% of the landscape, which was essentially mainly the moors, but also certain stretches of the coastal path. And they fought long and hard for it. And there was an incredible amount of sort of back and forth over what was on the table. Rivers, all rivers were on the table, as far as I'm aware, but had to be taken off the table because of the way these kind of conversations go. But our problem with the Countryside and Rights of Way Act is, one, it only allows walking, that sense of us being at home in nature and being able to camp, premised on the responsibility of us taking care for it and, you know, removing all of our litter. None of that is part of our right to roam, as it is in Scotland, as it is in Norway or Estonia or Sweden. But also these places are, for the majority of people in England, just so damn far away. And that introduces like two dynamics. One, nature just becomes a holiday. So you pack your kids into the car and you go for a sort of three-day long weekend up at the Peak District, and that's great. But nature is itself othered. You know, it's not an intrinsic part of your life. Whereas it could be if the Greenbelt was opened up to us. 
But also, second, it provides just a class barrier or a financial income barrier for those people that do want to go walking and actually can neither afford the train fare or the petrol, or even because they're not allowed to camp, having to get a bed and breakfast for, you know, like that's two rooms, put the kids in in the same room, that kind of thing. Nature is not for everyone. So the Countryside and Rights of Way Act must be extended in terms of the scope of it. And, you know, more nature must be brought to more people. So someone listening to this thinking, well, this is fine, you know, but it's not practical. One of the things I think you want to say to them is, well, if it's not practical, why do they do it in so many other countries? Because that's another thing that your book taught me is that the kind of more general right which you want to establish in England exists in other countries. And indeed, even in Scotland, the situation is much better. Absolutely. But there is a difference, I think. I think comparing it to other countries is useful because it questions this idea that trespass is some kind of moral absolute wrong. If I've crossed the border or, you know, the perimeter of the Duke of Westminster's land in England, then it's considered to be this kind of shameful act, like an aggressive act towards the landowner themselves. But if I step across any of the Duke of Westminster's land in Scotland, it's considered absolutely my human right and good luck to me. You know, the law actively welcomes you and encourages you into the land. On a practical level, there are differences between countries, and I'm not suggesting that the same framework could necessarily exist without changes or adaptation in each individual different country. But the fundamental code of Alas Mens Vet, or the right to roam as it is in Scotland and previously Sweden, that is something that relies fundamentally on that with your right to nature comes an absolute codified responsibility to it. So it covers dogs on leads in specific seasons, it covers litter, it covers, you know, ground nesting birds. It's very, very specific. The Scottish one even designates how far you should be allowed to piss from a river and, you know, so as not to affect the water streams. The notion that the right to roam is a free-for-all and that it will be, you know, the downfall of the sort of sanctity of people with property is just another attempt to kind of recategorize what is in fact just a very reasonable and responsible approach to the amount of space that is out there in England and just the desperate need that we have for it. Well, Nick, one thing you've done is you've added to my bucket list the fact that I'm going to do a bit of pro-social trespassing at some point in my life. You know, it's a wonderful book. It's a very beautiful book with your fantastic illustrations in it as well. Although I can strongly recommend you reading it in the garden, but if you are going to take it with you because you're going camping, you might want to get the ebook because it is quite heavy. Nick, before you go, if people want to get more involved in the campaign that you've been talking about, what should they do? Absolutely. As I sort of inferred before, like this is all about action and the words are only there to incite action. So we have a campaign that we're about to launch. The website is righttoroam.org.uk and we're just looking for people to become our ambassadors. This website has all the information that you might need to know, including the context and the arguments against Right to Roam. And we're not looking to preach to people. We're just looking to present the information. And if they're so inclined, please to join us either on picnic, Morris dance, trespasses, or the simple act of sharing this information on social media. It's time for a sea change in the way we approach land. And righttoroam.org.uk is definitely the first step towards that. Nick Hayes, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. 
But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.